Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, a psychotherapist and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at our studio. And um, this is a show about what matters most in our lives, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share the tip of the week about change being inevitable. So let's get ready for it. And then I share the latest research about even light to moderate drinking is associated with harm to the brain. I know you don't want to hear it, but it's interesting research. Then I chat with Dr. Mohammed Nami, a medical doctor, a translational neuroscientist, and the director of brain cognitive and behavioral um, at the Department of Neuroscience in Shiraz University of Medical Sciences. He is the member of the Harvard Alumni for Mental Health at Harvard Medical School. And today we'll be discussing the neuroscience approach to health and beyond, a very comprehensive model. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and my podcast and connect with me through Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, any of it. I'd love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, and all of it. But first, here's the tip of the week. tip of the week. Change is inevitable. Yes, we all know it. Yet, it produces the most amount of anxiety for people. Change creates stress. When the change is chosen and the future is expected, such as moving up the academic ladder, getting a promotion in a company, getting married, having a child, any of those changes, um, they're still stressful. Even when change is chosen, there are areas of unknown awaiting that creates anxiety. There's also grief and mourning period to let go of the status quo, whether you liked it or not. There's also the uncomfortableness and the effort of acquiring new behaviors and patterns while letting go of the old ones. When change has not been chosen and it is forced upon, such as being fired, laid off, being told that your partner is requesting for a divorce, a war, pandemic, illnesses, you know, all of those. The shock, the denial, the resistance, the anger, anxiety, and the grief of losing what the person has become extremely hard. Envisioning a pleasurable future is going to be resisted and at times even impossible. I've talked to senior um, in a high school who's going through the transition from childhood to adulthood, knowing that he needs to say goodbye to all his friends who all will be going to different colleges across the nation. 
anxious about moving to college away from home for the first time in his life, terrified of taking care of himself without his parents being there all the time. I had a conversation with a woman who after 10 years of marriage, her husband left home and wants a divorce. She is in the utmost grief stage, bargaining at times, begs at times, yells, pushes him away, cries all day and will not accept what is being proposed. She refuses to see a future without him and therefore cannot envision the future of herself. I spoke with a man who after three months of sobriety, after 10 years of being on painkillers and other types of opioids, is terrified of living sober day to day and faces his emotional dysregulations. He misses his coping mechanism of numbing his feelings, even though it was truly unhealthy. The future terrifies him. He does not see himself equipped to create a successful life. So his anxiety, shame, hopelessness, and helplessness pushes him away, goes back to relapse. Even relapse terrifies him. He feels stuck between a rock and a hard place of misery with change in any direction. I spoke to a couple who are in love and are planning to move in together and get married. Great plan. It's all a good change, right? They are both very anxious about how to adapt to each other's space, temperament, and needs. They're aware that they must negotiate on all levels, from adjust adjusting to the bedroom temperature to all major financial decisions. The change is going from a singlehood that allowed each of them to make solo decision about what made them comfortable to couplehood that requires for both to be happy and comfortable. The grief of losing personal freedom to the anxiety of how far they must lose themselves to gain the us. Yes, change is inevitable. Change is happening every second, whether you realize it or not. However, you're choosing to be consistent with a belief or a behavior, and that is why it appears constant. I want to say this again. Change is happening every second whether you realize it or not. However, it is you that's choosing to be consistent with a belief or a behavior that it makes it, it appears to be constant. It has the delusion that is constant. You're not even breathing the same air every time. You fill up your lungs, but it appears that you're consistently breathing the same way because you think that way. Inconsistency or change threatens our perceived sense of safety and security. Therefore, human beings need to create an illusion that all is constant to protect their own sanity. Human beings takes what has experienced in the past and projects it into the future to keep the momentum and consistency of existence. Creating a vision of the pleasurable future is the key to reducing anxiety of handling change. Since it is a natural process to grieve for all that you are losing as a part of the change, allow yourself to cherish all that you have gained, all that you have learned, experienced, and will hold within you as a pleasurable memory, complete with what you have to leave behind by talking to people writing letters, 
writing in your own journal, expressing your appreciation about all that you have gained from those experiences. Cry if you need, laugh, hug, and kiss it goodbye. Now, create a visual picture of the future that you intend to create. Create a collage, write a detail of what you want to create, see yourself behaving, thinking, feeling, and accomplishing those goals. Enjoy the feeling of creativity and an achievement. When the what if negative ones show up, come back, ask yourself if there's anything you can do for that not to happen, and then incorporate those steps into your daily planning. Observe your accomplishments so far, assess and identify your strengths and skills, and trust that you will use them when necessary. Realize that life has been changing constantly since you were conceived and born, and you have handled it. Therefore, you will handle any changes that it surfaces. If change intrudes upon you and takes you by surprise, use all your skills to handle it. View change as an ongoing concept, the same as you view the weather or driving conditions. Look for it, be prepared, and handle it with your strength. Change is inevitable. View it as an ongoing concept. Welcome it as the next level of your growth. Handle it with all your strengths and await the next change as it is guaranteed to show up. For more observational and integrational skills and to set intentional goals, for your future, get my book, Life Reset, the Awareness Integration Path to Creating the Life You Want. Thank you. This is to all of you therapists, counselors, coaches, and teachers out there offering you my latest book, Awareness Integration Therapy, Clear the Past, create a new future, and live a fulfilled life now. Every person that reaches out to a psychotherapist, a counselor, or a coach is seeking to learn skills that can be utilized daily to foster a successful and fulfilling life. So this book offers an effective tool to all psychotherapists and coaches for supporting their clients to become aware of their inner process and to be accountable for it as well as the results in all areas of their lives with the utmost level of care and acceptance. This is a must read for all of you clinicians and coaches who desire to offer a deep therapeutic work in a brief period of time suited for this era. Here's the latest research. I don't know if you're going to like this, but I have to let you know. According to a new study, even light to moderate drinking is associated with harm to the brain. Researchers analyzed data from more than 36,000 adults that found a link between drinking and a reduced brain volume that begins at an average consumption level of, are you ready? Less than one alcohol unit a day, the equivalent of half a beer, and rises with each additional drink. 
The research using a database of more than 36,000 adults revealed that going from one to two drinks a day um, was linked with changes in the brain equivalent to aging two years. Heavier drinking was associated with an even greater toll. The science on heavy drinking and brain is clear. The two don't have a healthy relationship. People who drink heavily have alterations in brain structure and size that are associated with cognitive impairments. The link grew stronger, the greater the level of alcohol consumption. The researchers showed that an example in 50-year-olds as average drinking among individuals increased from one alcohol unit, half a beer, a day to two units, a pint of beer or a glass of wine, um, there are associated changes in the brain equivalent to aging two years. Yes. Oh my God. Going from two to three alcohol units at the same age was like aging three and a half years. The team reported these findings in the Journal of Nature Communications. So this, the, the researchers say that the fact that we have such a large sample size allows us to find subtle patterns even between drinking the equivalent of half a beer and one beer a day. These findings contrast with scientific and governmental guidelines on safe drinking limits. For example, although the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism recommends that women consume an average of no more than one drink per day, Recommended limits for men are twice as that. An amount that exceeds the consumption level associated in the study with decreased volume, brain volume. So ample research has examined the link between drinking and brain health with ambiguous results. While strong evidence exists that heavy drinking causes changes in the brain structure, including strong reductions in gray and white matter across the brain, other studies have suggested that moderate levels of alcohol consumption may not have an impact, or even that light drinking could benefit the brain in older adults. These earlier investigations, however, lack the power of large data sets. So probing massive quantities of data for patterns in is the specialty of these researchers who have conducted previous studies using the UK Biobank, a database with genetic and medical information from half, um, half a million British middle-aged and older adults. They employed biomedical data from these resources in the current study, specifically looking at brain MRIs from more than 36,000 adults in the biobank, which can be used to calculate white and gray matter volume in different regions of the brain. Having this data set is like having a microscope or a telescope with a more powerful lens. So you get a better resolution and start seeing patterns and associations you couldn't do that before. So to gain an understanding of possible connections between drinking and the brain, it was critical to control all the confounding variables that could break this relationship. The team controlled for age, height, handedness, sex, smoking status, socioeconomic status, genetic ancestry, and country, uh, county of residence. They also corrected the brain volume data for overall head size. The volunteer participants in the biobank has responded to survey questions about their alcohol consumption level, from complete abstention to an average of four or more alcohol units a day. 
When the researchers grouped the participants by average consumption levels, a small but apparent pattern emerged. The gray and white matter volume that might otherwise be predicted by the individual's other characteristics were reduced. Going from zero to one alcohol units didn't make much of a difference in brain volume, but going from one to two or two to three units a day was associated with reductions in both gray and white matter. It's not linear. It gets worse the more you drink. Scientists found that even removing the heavy drinkers from the analysis, the association still remained. The lower brain volume was not localized to any one brain region. To give a sense of the impact, the researchers compared the reduction in brain size linked with drinking to those that occur with aging. Based on their model, are you ready? Are you sitting down? Each additional alcohol unit consumed per day was reflected in a greater aging effect in the brain while going from zero to a daily average of one alcohol unit was associated with the equivalent of a half a year of aging. The difference between zero and four drinks was more 10 years of aging. This is some evidence that the effect of drinking on the brain is exponential. So one additional drink in a day could have a more of an impact than any of the previous drinks you've that day. That means that cutting back on the final drink of the night might have a big effect in terms of brain aging. In other words, the people who can benefit the most from drinking less are the people who are already drinking the most. Well, I hope that sheds a light and maybe changes your drinking behaviors. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fulhan Zain. I am so excited to have Dr. Mohamed Nami with me. He's a medical doctor and an applied neuroscientist holding a PhD in clinical cognitive neuroscience and clinical fellowship in sleep disorders. He is currently the director of brain cognition and behavior um, at the Department of Neuroscience at Shiraz University of Medical Sciences. He is also an associate alumnus and a member of the Harvard Alumni for Mental Health at Harvard Medical School. And he serves as the SBNT Brain Mapping Foundation scientist. It is such a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled for the opportunity. And I hope that we're just going to run a fruitful discussion together. Looking forward to it. Let's go. Absolutely. Um, you have been a guest at my show before, and we were talking about the sleep disorders. But I am so um, excited to talk about the neuroscience approach health and beyond um, that you have fostered and you wanted to share uh, with our audience. Yep. Today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, this has been a like a conceptual model that we've come up with as like a, like a collective intelligence and the, the discussion within a within the consortium of thoughts. I mean, people or experts from different different disciplines when we're sitting together and talking about the implications of modern neuroscience, brain 
studies and insights and how this can inform our mental health number one and number two our quality of life but not only mental health but general health sounds odd in some ways but that's reality so we were just putting them together all the insights and facts and figures and we're discussing around a table how this can be conceptualized and how this can materialize into a form of uh, a work model and uh, if we're going to uh, I mean, put in the perspective the the goals and aims and variables, or I mean, the the, the definitives. How we're going to approach and use the mental uh, uh, health studies and neuroscience studies, and just cross connect that, or or I mean, stitch that to the idea of general health and social health. And by that, the the, the prime of our journey started with developing a triangle, which are the three main pillars of the implications and the role of neuroscience insights into our health. So the first, I, uh, I mean, uh, the first variable, the first item in the triangle was the general health, and the second was social health, and the third one was neurocognitive health. So if we could have just a model for, just take a look at a model at a glance, it all started with the with the with the triangle on the left top corner. Then we have this health concept, which is tied back to the general health, social health, neurocognitive health. And if we're well focusing on the neurocognitive health, we definitely can put um, you know the concept of brain health into the perspective. And then we'll move on to talk about the brain health. So you, I, I know that you've been doing a marvelous job and tremendous experience you've had in the field of mental health. And you as an expert, Dr. Fujian, how, how you think till, till this point, it makes sense to you and we can cross-link uh, general health, mental health to brain health. What's your position on that? Um, what has happened to me is um, knowing that when your mental health is not up to par, uh, definitely your general health and social health and all relationships goes down the drain because the brain is the decision maker, the, the, the organ that makes decisions, creates behaviors and creates relatedness. And if the one organ that is not working functionally, it's going to affect every aspect of it. And unfortunately, I think that has been pushed aside for so many years. Part of it has been pushed aside, right. Dr. Nami, because we don't have effective measurement tools so far. And, you know, for, for general health, we have all of these uh, types of exams and tests that, you know, physician have the ability to say, I'm not even going to talk to you unless I have the MRI. I can't even talk to you unless I have the blood test. So it's like, I'm going to get, right. I'm going to do some guessing game, but I don't have it. With mental disorders, it has been really tough for, for psychiatrists, psychologists um, um, who have been trying to just with a history taking from someone who comes into our office and only remembers and recollects part of the history that is with them. And due to that, we need to assess and then see what we're going to do. You know, right. what we're do. So developing developing a model that brings all of these aspects of the medical field together and then together we could look at what is important and you've talked before about how you know the physical health um uh, the physical health 
impacts the mental health and how the mental health impacts. So as we kind of marry them together, finally, in this concept, we can look at a bigger picture of that, which is going to be very helpful. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that is absolutely very true, true. And what you indicated is, is, is really valid, in a sense that when we talk about mental health, we got to be having a valid toolbox or some kind of measures, metrics to go for the evaluation of the mental health, what it really means by mental health. If we're talking about the motor uh, or, or, or sensory aptitude, if we're talking about our cognitive aptitude, our cognitive health, our memory, attention, learning, executive functions and decision man- making and planning and problem solving and so on and so forth, or language. If we talk about some other pillars of our brain health, of our, I mean, of our overall uh, uh, brain health or social health, we got to be having a general idea about the affective health and also our, our behavioral health. So this is like, uh, if we are conceptualizing into the next, uh, I mean, geometry, next part of the model, which is very closely linked to the brain health, we will be having a pentagon here. And here in the pentagon, we have five main pillars, cognitive, behavioral, affective, motor, and sensory health. But for these kind of things, Dr. Fujian, we, we have metrics and measurements. So we have all the pen and paper and computer-based neurocognitive profiling uh, assessment tools. We have the QEG, we have for behavioral uh, health, we have all the measures for the assessment of the neuropsychological and behavioral health and behavioral aptitude. For the affective health, we got some you know, validated tests for the measurement of the, the affective health and productivity. Also for motor that we have you know measurements for the strength or or processing speed of the motor system and also sensory system we can now measure the equity of our caustic system of our scent of our like uh olfaction of our tactician of our visual system uh we can we can test the uh you know the gustatory capacity of the person how uh distinct uh, we are in terms of recognizing the tastes, you know what I mean? So it's important. And, and we know that these are all coming from uh, the, the main production line and the production line stems from the brain. So we got the brain and we got the production line and at the end of the production line, we have the, the products. So the products of the healthy brain will be healthy cognitive status, healthy behavioral status, healthy affective control, healthy motor performance, and healthy sensory aptitude. So this is the second part of the model. So we started from the triangle, the social health, the general health, and neurocognitive health. Then we're having the brain health. And brain health is closely stapled to the next part of the the model, which is the, uh, the, the integrative brain health so for the integrative brain health we got to be having this kind of you know uh uh, five main pillars into perspective otherwise we're just you know lost in the ocean we don't have we have no gps working out there so we we need to be exactly where we're going and what 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 definite substrate of brain health we're 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 tapping into but fortunately today with the modern neuroscience most of the time we have some measures and metrics including like fmri uh 
quantitative EEG, uh, like optic brain mapping, and also we have some other measures, including the computer-based, uh, you know, media-rich computer-based uh, cognitive platforms and stuff like that. And also we have all the measures to assess the uh, most, uh, you know, precisely to assess the acuity of the sensory modalities. Okay, well, does that make sense to you in a way? Yep. It really does. Um, the I think one of the conversation is that is that accessible to everyone or is it only accessible to people who go to, for, for example, research universities and, you know, they are in the, no. the huge medical uh, facilities that do research. Um, part of it is that where is it that people and I and I love it that you're talking about each one of these actually effective tools that are there. And maybe as you're going through your model, it really takes, uh, you know, the medical community and the policymakers and all of that to bring exactly. all of exactly. these into an accessible concept where when you go to a psychiatrist uh, or your internist, that they have the capacity and capability of giving you all of these tools and measure it in that in, in that perspective. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that, that is a very fundamental point you tap into. And, and that is that should be the case. And there is a way to do it. So number one is that we just transform from the disconnect approach between the different disciplines in different specialties into a connect approach. So we got to be fostering the teamwork spirit, number one. So for example, I as a neuroscientist, the guy as a neurologist, as a psychiatrist, as a psychologist, as a you know, cognitive therapist or whoever, technologist, engineers, we need to work together as a team, right? And by that, we can develop a functional model. We can develop a platform. So this has been a question in many different settings. For example, in our country, in the Middle East, we've been doing such a thing, and we're de we've developed this over the past five, six years, and we've been running the brain health assessment for the people at screening level. So when you're talking about diagnostic tests, at some, it means something, but the screening should sit something before diagnosis. Diagnosis relates to uh, you know, uh, diseases, but screening refers to health. So we need to check your health. We need to check your vitality. So we go for all those measurements before any disease show up. So by this, we go for brain check. We go for brain health check. The same scenario we start to develop within the body of the Society for Brain Mapping and Therapeutics. And we're fortunately, as a consortium of thoughts, I mean, a team of like 40-something people, we got a paper recently published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and it's called NeuroScreen. So if people just, or those who are, you know, a fan of academic stuff, if they want to just uh, punch in the word neuro screen in PopMed or in Google, they will, uh, I mean, they will come across the paper and they can go through it. So as far as I know, this has come to, uh, uh, this has been transferred to the, uh, I mean, decision table and decision desk of the people at the administrative, you know, level in the US, for, fortunately. This is going to be the case for some other countries. This is going to be the case for our setting. So the thing is that we need to provide something accurate, as you indicated correctly, accessible, and reasonably, I mean, at reasonable cost, and also it should be available uh, for, for the people. This should not be so time consuming or challenging. This should not be, you know, uh, harmful. This should not be uh, painful. So the people should feel quite comfortable to go to a setting near to their home and just ask for brain check, as simple as that. And, 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 uh, 
how, why we do it, Dr. Fujian, the third part of the model tells us about that. So we do the brain check within the context of neuroscience uh, advances and also the, the novel technologies because we, we, we got to go for prevention, number one, and prediction. What is the risk profile for you as a young lady to develop, for example, I don't know, God forbid, Parkinson's Alzheimer's when you're reaching the X, the age of X, for example. What is the risk profile for that a specific person who does not have a good brain health index, smokes quite a bit, he's addicted to alcohol or is over drinking or drinking irresponsibly, he does not have a good control of over anxiety and distressing worries, he does not sleep well, he does not follow a healthy diet, and he's not physically active. So Everything is, you know, off the chart. So the person is not doing fine. What is the risk profile for that for that specific person with a family history of dementia, let's say, to develop Alzheimer's at the age of X? So these are the things that we got. We got measures. We got predictive models in modern neuroscience to go for and tell the person, look, you are as a high risk profile person. And you need to do such and such and such to stay away from developing the higher risk of this as you're moving down the road, as you're aging. So prediction is one thing. Prevention. If I understood that, okay, Mr. Mr. X, he's at the higher risk profile for development of Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or anxiety or depression or schizophrenia or PTSD or whatever, how I'm going to help that person to, to prevent this. And also predictive medicine, preventive medicine. The other side of the story is precision medicine or, or personalized medicine and neuromedicine, which is personalized. And that's crucially important because I, yeah. if, if, I, if I and you, we, we, we both have depression, let's say, okay? We go to the doctor and the doctor, I mean, psychiatrist, for example, is a neurologist or whoever, psychologist. And we tell them, yes, doc, I do have depression. I, I, I do not enjoy the life as I used to. And then I, we start to talk and he listens to us and starts writing the medications because he goes to the DSM and the DSM is like the, the rule. What, whatever DSM says is, is my decision point. And by that, I'm going to decide, okay, I made a guess because of the symptoms and what you told me, you got my major depressive disorder, and I got a bunch of medications on the table. I'm going to make another guess upon the previous guess to go for one of those medications, and I'm going to give you the, the medicine X. So you go for it. You're not feeling fine. I'm going to change the medication. You're, st you're still struggling. I'm going to increase the, the dose. You develop some side effects. I'm going to decrease the dose. So there is no objective measure. So everything goes by trial and error but in personalized medicine we do fmri when indicated yep yep go ahead i also think the preventive conversation that you're having is such a crucial concept especially with addiction because i think that when when there is a prevention uh, measurement tool when you know someone has an addictive behavior which it shows in so many other layers when they go in and ask for you know they go in and ask for okay I'm diagnosed with ADHD and give me uh, you know an, <laughs> some sort of an amphetamine or they go into a doctor and say I have anxiety and they give them Xanax and Valium you understand that right. that person who already has a spectrum of an addictive behavior and an um, you know obsessive thinking that it's so 
much, the higher risk of that person becoming addicted to those pills. And then obviously those pills, as we've seen, shifts into some sort of either, um, you know, street drug or shifts into the pain pills, which, you know, takes us to the opiate crisis that is around the world. So um, I really enjoy this, seeing that there can be an assessment and a preventive assessment where uh, not only the uh, the physician has it, but also I think that the model that I have, and you've been privy to the awareness integration, takes the agency of the person so that they can also start looking at, you know, how are they thinking, feeling, yeah. behaving. So that kind of an um, awareness uh, between the, the patient and themselves and the physicians, um, I think it exactly. brings it into a space where they can move forward for an appropriate treatment versus a trial and error treatment, a being a guinea pig exactly. and moving forward. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that awareness integration memory and awareness integration theory. And I recommend everybody to just take a look at it. Uh, it's really insightful in terms of when we're, t when we're in control. And when we know exactly where we're moving, where we're going, and we know that we're responsible for our decisions, we're going to be responsible for the consequences of our decisions. And, and by that, we need to take part in the process of diagnosis and the treatment of our problem or, or our diseases, if any, or illnesses, if any, because we're part of the, we are, we're part of the circle. So if we see here in the, in the third uh, pentagon of the model, when we have the prediction, prevention, and diagnosis, which is supposed to be personalized, the next step is, is uh, like follow-up, okay? And treatment and follow-up. So I'm a part of the treatment. I need to decide together with the doctor what diagnostic measures or what therapeutic decisions we need to take together. Of course, the doctor knows better because that's his specialty, but, but definitely I will play a role here. And then the follow-up, I need to show up. I need to get, I mean, uh, uh, get with a flow of, of all the uh, tests and everything and just show up again with a doctor or with my psychologist or whoever. So these are the things which, which refers to the P4 neuromedicine, predictive medicine, preventive neuromedicine, personalized neuromedicine, and participatory neuromedicine. And the third pentagon is cross-linked to the to the fourth pentagon. That the fourth pentagon is is really dependent dependent on the academy and how the scientists, how the very basic scientists or trans translational neuroscientists, how the clinical or cognitive neuromedicine experts, how the people as applied neuroscientists can add to the level of health and quality of life. Of uh, the people at different levels, not only disease people, not only people who have cognitive, behavioral, motor, sensory, or affective uh, predicaments, but also the healthy population that they want to level up. They want to increase the level of uh, their proficiency, the level of the performance. If you are a teacher, if you are a doctor, if you are a professional athlete, if you are an artist, if you're an actor, if you are a business person, a CEO of a great company, you got to optimize your brain productivity, your brain function. And these are all stemming in uh, the, the advances in neuroscience research and advances and how we're going to apply the neurotechnology for the betterment of the quality of life and health. And that's why we're talking about, we're, I'm just trying to portray the link between neuroscience, mental health, general health, and well-being. And that's why the UN, United Nations, uh, you know, Sustainable Development Goal are kind of focused 
on neuroscience, our brain health, our brain science, and the UN SDG number three, or Sustainable Development Goal number three of the UN focuses of mental health and well-being, and that got, that has got many things to do with uh, policies. And the last part of the model that we're just you know that circling that back to the first concept of health, so it's like just to close in the circuit, is is uh, does does have uh, does uh, uh, so many. Uh, in common with the stakeholders. It has so many things in common with the stakeholders. Uh, who are the stakeholders? Us, us people, I mean, individuals, patients. Neuroscientists are playing, playing a key role here. They are part of the game. And physicians and mental health providers are a fundamental parts of the deal here. And we have biomedical teams, practitioners, professionals, I mean, uh, caregivers, families as well. And the society, the awareness, right as we're talking now, we are at the midst of uh, the, uh, the Brain Awareness Week. So that's the Global Awareness Initiative, where we're having seminars and talks and I don't know, shows or whatever, to just open the eyes of the public to the significance of the gem between their ears. We, they got something in their skull and that really matters, okay? And we need to, I mean, let the people understand the significance and the salience of the brain as the most important thing they have. And the policymakers, most of them, they are not aware of this kind of things. So if we, if we ask them to please, policymakers, listen to this podcast, watch this video, let's sit around the table, let's have lunch together, let's discuss. And by this, we together can convince the investors, not only policymakers, but investors and governing bodies, or I mean, the decision makers at the, at the public level, at the governmental level, to just go and reallocate more budget, more time, more credit, more, uh, I mean, uh, space to move for us. And by that, we're going to help the people love their brain more. We're going to help the people value and treasure their mental health more. And we're going to help them be more productive. And when they are productive, they are happy, we are happy, and the world is going to be happier. So that's all about the model. I hope that makes sense uh, to uh, whoever sees the model. And we're going to put that together. Maybe we're going to publish this within the mental health uh, alumni at Harvard Medical School or together with, uh, hopefully with SBMT. And if you're gonna give us a hand for that, that would be awesome because I always admire you as one of the field experts. And uh, I've been always learning and getting insights from you. Thank you so much, Dr. Fujian, for the Thank opportunity you. to talk about the model. Of course, I'm, I'll be honored to do that. I think that um, as you were saying about the, all the stakeholders, I think every individual, um, they are a stakeholder about who they are and what they need for their body and how they can ask for it, whether they ask for it from their physicians, the clinicians, they ask for it from their policymakers, they ask for it from you know the, the, the friends and families that they have that might be investors. Um, what can investors do? They can fund um, a lot of the technology that neuroscientists are needing in order to create all of those uh, preventive measures and tools and tests and all of those to be able to be uh, mass produced in a way that it can be accessible. Again, like if you, you know, everybody does not, every physician does not have the uh, the space and nor the funding to bring a functional MRI into their office. But I'm sure that when 
you know, when they're funding to projects that um, accessible tools such as that can be getting, getting created in a technology format that it can actually be useful at any psychiatrist or a physician internet yeah. office, yeah. that it really, really helps this part of the assessment. So I think we're talking, um, you know, your model takes, um, takes an, a kind of like a holistic perspective of every single person's um, space where they can be useful and they can be, um, you know, a, a critical, um, a, a critical uh, person and um, and a tool right. in order to move this forward. Um, there's also, like you said, I think is the agency of the person to be able to see what part they play in it. Sometimes patients feel like I don't have any control and I'm powerless. And in, the, in your model, you're also saying how much they have power into this. One is that if they see in any of the areas of their uh, their life, um, they're not being uh, successful, they're not being practical, and they're suffering for them to take right. ownership of that and actually go and seek and ask uh, to get the best treatment out there. Um, so it's Absolutely. Them, but it also starts from the scientists who are constantly looking and bringing the best out there to to the public. And I think that bringing all of them together, your model is um, is a comprehensive model that kind of allows each part of the society to come together and um, sit together and create that. So thank you for doing that. Thank you very much. It's our model and we're going to develop that. We're going to take it to the next level and we're going to, I mean, uh, uh, highlight the significance of these kind of different variables and bits and pieces when we're, you know, conceptualizing them all together, forming a pragmatic model. This is going to make a change and we are here to make a difference. Uh, everybody is there to make a change, change for better, of course. So if we take all the variables and all the uh, identifiers and the, you know, defining measures into account, then when we are going to come together, because one knows it all, so we need to come in company, we need to sit around a table and keep on discussing, keep on having conversations like this or conferences like what we have in a matter of few days in the global meetings. And yeah, and also the Brain Awareness Week and everything. We, we, we got to publish the papers and let the people read them and give us the feedback. So uh, please, whoever sees this or watches uh, uh, this later on or who's going to, uh, I don't know, uh, follow the podcast or whatever, Give us some commands. Help us understand your thoughts. So uh, no one knows it all. And we, we certainly welcome your insights, your feedbacks, and put it together. And uh, we, we will shine together and only together, Dr. Fujian. Right? We are uh, also uh, looking at another paper together that is about the opiate crisis that is uh, mainly exactly. in the States and uh, in uh, other areas of the world. And I think that exactly. the same concept and the model really helps to uh, to look at uh, the, the person's need, the family, um, because it really impacts the whole family. So how the family shows up and comes together. I think it's important to to, um, to bring the health for everyone. So sometimes the family thinks that, especially if the person is no longer um, a young, you know, um, under age of eighteen, above age of eighteen, sometimes the family members think I have no other 
uh, power to do anything, and yet they do. And if they get educated about how they can support their family members to uh, to go into the space of getting treatment and assessments and treatment, because if they don't, the whole family collapses because one person, the same way I think, Dr. Nami, when one person uh, gets diagnosed by cancer, it affects mm-hmm. every single person in that family. You can imagine that is, when, when that one, is absolutely right. Yeah, when one person is diagnosed with uh, clinical depression or uh, bipolar or um, I mean, uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or any of these diseases who are mostly brain diseases, has the same. And not to forget that, and not to forget the neurodevelopment disorders like ADHD, autism, fragile X syndrome, and you know verbal developmental delay, motor developmental delay. Many many families are suffering quite a bit because their children are not doing fine. And this is this is also really important because the sooner we get to do the the job, the sooner we we get evo- involved, the better we can expect the outcome. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but that was that was something that we also need to uh, you know put it on the table as we're discussing about the uh, physical, mental health issues of brain disorders. Yeah. Yes. And what would your suggestions be to the family members? How could they support? these uh, prospects and moving forward? Um, would that be skills, um, how they ask or how they understand the diseases? Um, one of the things that I usually request for family members is get educated because if you're not educated about the disease of the person, a family member who's in your life, you're gonna treat them like there's, you know, um, like there, uh, there's a problem with them, but as if there's a problem with them, um, there's something wrong with them. It's not that mm-hmm. there is a disease. And the more that the family member understands a disease, not only they can deal with it in a different way, but they also don't make the patient a wrong. So they, they support the patient uh, to move forward and get the treatment versus create a lot more of a personality issues and, and power uh, struggle dynamics between the family members and the patient versus, you know, and the patient gets more traumatized and the family members get more traumatized by the disease that is happening versus everybody understanding it and coming together and working with it. What are your thoughts on Exactly. And exactly, I would say I would say yes, hundred percent. And uh, what uh, the I mean the the fact of the matter here is is that when people have issues, have challenges with regards to the brain health, mental health, functionality whatsoever in that realm, they got to get informed, as you indicated. But informed, not misinformed not disinformed. So internet is is all over the place. So the people can go and check check on things which are not true, which are absolutely myths, and they they will be detracted. And uh, they will just increase their worry and the distressing worry by by knowing something which is not backed up by the science. So when something is uh, like like a valid information, uh, I would be educated with the valid information. So by that, I'm gonna have the educated decisions. And then we need to come together so let's have the, the focus groups. Let's have the community setting get-togethers. So let's have like virtual like teams or whatever. And then when we are more, we are merrier and we're stronger. So we can pass on the torch and we can just you know pass on the message to the people. Scientists will play a role. 
key individuals like you as you've been you know broadcasting science and uh five-star information all the time so people can rely on people at your caliber get in touch with you and then you will be part of their community you help them to get their message crossed to cross to what to cross to whom cross to policymakers decision makers universities i mean fourth generation ac academies and by that the the governors the, the the investors those people who who value the importance of the thing then they will say yeah let's let's decide quite differently about this let's help them out and by this they are going to have the support groups and help the people get to know uh advisors consultants and you know those like coaches those people who help them to conquer the var the worry that they have as a caregiver or as a person who is struggling with this it's not only the mental predicament it's the financial burden it's the social burden it's this it, it is this stigma as you pointed out so the, it's a, like a multifaceted different dimensions that we need to be aware of and so about my suggestion as a passionate and a restless learner in neuroscience is, and you are a great psychologist. So we too are part of the team. And we have other colleagues and associates from different you know, uh, uh, perspectives in brain sciences. So when we come together as, as already we're doing, when we publish papers, we're, when we're writing books, when we're having like media, audiovisual you know, uh, products like this, and people will get unlimited access to this for, for life. <laughs> and the people, can, people perhaps if they need it, I don't know if how, how, how interesting this might be for them, but there are some videos or, or podcasts that we, I personally can listen to that like for, for times, all right? So because every single time that I listen to them in more depth, I will get some more information and insight from that. So these are the resources that we have. And the most important resource is, 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 is behind my eyeglasses my brain. So I need to use the best of my brain and I need to share my thoughts, my, my values, my needs, my desires, my, my concerns with my peers. And as a support group, a focus group, we can make an impact. Absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise we're going to, you know, we're going to just remain in silence and nothing going to change for better. Absolutely. Right? It's been a Let's do it. Pleasure to talk to you. I always learn so much from you. It is always a pleasure to have you. You can oh, yeah. you have a carte blanche to be on my show every week. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know what? Awesome. You know what? You know what? I, I'm telling you a truth. Pleasure is all mine. And that is what I wanted to tell you. Number one. And number two is that it's always a very fantastic opportunity not to discuss about this kind of things, but to help other people. Uh, just to raise eyebrows of the people to to get the uh, the matter on the spot and just to help them understand well look my friends neuroscience is not about rats neuroscience is not about zebrafish only neuroscience is not about stem cell which is going to be there in the laboratory and not for the health of the people neuroscience is going to serve us as human beings neuroscience is going to help help us to have a better life a quality of life if you will and neuroscience is to help us to have a health in a more inclusive and generalized concept and that's why neuroscience is something which makes my heart sink yes absolutely it's been a pleasure to have you on our show and thank you so much uh, where can people find you dr nami 
Well, uh, uh, I, I normally uh, get connected with people and we have social interaction in terms of our professional, you know, impacts that we can have bi-directionally and on LinkedIn. And also uh, I appear on Instagram. I don't have a, an active Facebook, but uh, they can also uh, Google my name and they can find my email if they want to reach out for any collaboration or something that I can be of assistance for. I would be more than happy to. And uh, the, the more, the better. Definitely. Beautiful. Dr. Nami, everyone, it's been a pleasure to have you and uh, don't go anywhere, you guys. I'll be right back. 